Hey, this is John Reap from the Country-ish Podcast on the All Things Comedy Network. No sports? No problem. My bookie offers the latest and most popular sport game titles and state-of-the-art software. No need to leave the comfort of your home. It's all at your fingertips. Featuring a truly flawless live casino, complete with professional dealers, as well as a large selection of classic and progressive slots games, plus the greatest selection of video poker variants. They really do offer something for everyone. Take advantage of their daily promotions for the casino, which includes bonuses, cash backs, raffles, free chips, and free spins for you to increase your chances of winning every single day. Also, you can put your skills to the test in their latest free blackjack and slots tournaments, which includes a free 10K prize pool blackjack tournament. Stuck at home? Don't even sweat it. They got you covered. Join now and start winning big today. Sick and tired of getting the runaround when you ask for a payout? My bookie pays fast when you win. With decades of experience, great customer service, and hassle-free transactions, why would you bet anywhere else? Visit mybookie.ag and use the promo code ATCCASINO for a 150% bonus on your first deposit. Bet with the biggest, win with the best, only at my bookie. As a busy weatherman, people rely on me for up-to-the-minute weather reporting, which means I need energy to keep me going throughout my day. Well, right now, you can get two Dunkin' Bacon, Egg, and Cheese sandwiches for $5. Well, in that case, the forecast calls for rain, sun, partly cloudy, high, low, scattered, isolated, umbrella jacket, flip-flops with 100% chance of look it up on the Internet. I've got sandwiches to eat. Humidity, dew point. Get two Dunkin' Bacon, Egg, and Cheese sandwiches for $5. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusions apply. What's up, fool? Podcast with Felipe Esparza. And Rodrigo Torres. What's up, fool? Chilling, dog. How you doing? Chilling, man. Me too, man. You ready, bro, for this weekend? Ready, dog. We're going to be in um, Fresno. Fresno. Thursday? Thursday, Fresno. That was last night, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we're recording it. It was it, a buddy. killer show, man. It was killer, bro. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for showing up. But tonight, bro, tonight... Friday, we're going to be in Merced, California. Hell yeah, at the Merced Theater. Merced Theater in California. In Merced Theater. Yeah, man. We might be in on 16th Street. You never know, man. Look out for us on 16th Street. Hell yeah, with Larry Bubbles Brown. Murr. Looking for <laughs> prostitutes over there. This fool. This fool. Who said that? <laughs> I don't I know. I Googled it, bro. <laughs> oh, some fool was hitting me up on Instagram. I was like, no, I don't want to hookers. I'm good on that shit. Barry here. What's up? Yeah. The Lord and Savior yeah, of man. stand-up comedy. What's up, fool? Chilling. And also uh, Visalia on Saturday, right? Visalia on Saturday. At the Fox Theater. Fox Theater, man. And Fresno. Also, um, we've been going there for a long time. Fuck, that's the beginning of the road trips. Huh? I was thinking about the first time we went to Visalia, and you were there, and um, it was me, you, Ivan, and then that it, black comedian, um, Tommy Chun. You bitch. Yeah. 
Yo, what's going on? I can't be doing this, Felipe. And now we were we, we were on the same bed, you and I, Ivan and I, bro. They sitting there annihilated, <laughs> sitting there gone, watching television, <laughs> laughing. And then Tommy Chun showed up with tacos. With tacos, he saved nice. the night. We we're hungry, high. Everything was closed, huh? That was so nice. Him and his know. girlfriend at the time, Robin, though. Robin. That was cool, man. They were knocked and they left a little bag of tacos. Hell yeah, like 20 of them. Oh, man. man. Oh, dude, fucking. Saved the day. Hell yeah, And we dog. find out a weekend it was because he had no weed. <laughs> <laughs> What's up with that weed situation, I fellas? I know, man. They couldn't get no more tacos, though. Huh, big old smoke, dog. <clears throat> Hell yeah, dog. How you living, dog? In living color, bro. <laughs> Living large, extra large now, bro. Hell, that's I what's lose up, extra large. I used to be a tight extra large before, man. Was, oh yeah, dog. I was rotund. <laughs> but now I meet people that I haven't seen in months. They say, "Felipe loses the weight." No, nah, man, we're loser clothes. <laughs> that's what's up, dude. Fuck, the, what is clothes. that, man? Uh, XL. X? Uh, XL. Uh, yeah, yeah, fool. Isn't that ego supposed to be bigger, bro? <laughs> nah, fool. It's an XL though. It's a little, it's a little snug. But fuck it, I can't go over those. Uh, Double XLs and no more 40s, dog. Just 38s. Yeah, man. You're wearing like that. I wore a shirt like that, bro, when I was working for a Dodger Stadium. <laughs> Who but, wants hot dogs? But mine says Aramark on it. <laughs> but yeah, man. Everything's cool, dog. So what's up, man? What's the living situation? Are you going to move in? I heard you met somebody that knew that lady that, that robbed you. Yeah, dude. Well, dude, this dude has a room over there in Eagle Rock, but the fucking restroom is attached to the back of the house. So if it's raining or it's hot, I got to walk over there to take a shower and shit. So I said, fuck it. But it's, it's a cool room. some bro. <laughs> some Crocs. That's, and, uh, that's funny, man. It's going to be raining. You're going to go to the bathroom. You're going to be like... um. Deadliest catch, bro. Fool, it doesn't even have concrete. There's a couple little roosters running around, fucking tomato vines, tomato vines, because the dude's from Sinaloa and shit. But um, then he has another. He has a, a white dude and a Guatemalan dude that want the place. But um, what that Guatemalan dude got robbed by the same lady where I was living at up the street from where I'm looking at that place, dude. But I'm probably not gonna get that place because it has that fucking shower out there. But then another fool wants me to move in because you know he already moved out with his lady and he has an apartment that he wants to keep because he doesn't know if it'll work out with the lady. So you know, in the meantime, how is that one gonna be? Um, it's an undisclosed price, but three hundred bucks. You know, I would say there, the man. Deal. That's what I'm thinking. I would so say there, it. just change the locks. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't cost nothing. Make sure you get it on paper, though. Right, Barry? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the king of contracts. Yes, sir. Right there, man. What's up, Barry Katz? <clears throat> How are you, Rodrigo? Good, brother. You know, just chilling. You yep. know, Rodrigo, man, he does a lot of... Now, man, so I was on... I don't I know if you heard or, or, you know, What's you must point? have heard. I was on the Industry Standard uh, podcast. podcast with Barry Katz. Yeah. It was emotional. It was good. <laughs> yeah, dog. It was got a crazy, lot of stuff man. out of you, Huffle. Hell yeah, man. Look at Tom Brokaw over here. Eh? <laughs> I know, man. He'd be psychologically asking questions, man. <laughs> he knew how to get to you, dog. Hell yeah, man. He understands you, I think. I thought I was I was doing a Scientology test. Bro. <laughs> Let me get out of this oddity bro, room. <laughs> bro, I almost made it, bro. I almost made it to, to touch David's hand. <laughs> The leader. Hell yeah, my question was coming from left and right. <laughs> that was a good podcast, man. It was over there, man. For, oh, you what didn't up? know on the way out of his office? You know you're in the what big happened, time, bro. I ran into Diana Ross. You're lying, dog. Yes, yes. She was coming down the stairs, and I was going up the stairs. No, she, And then I said, Diana Ross. <laughs> she said, hi. And then, of course, you know, Felipe Esparza starstruck. I started a conversation on the way out. <laughs> I saw you at the Celebrity Theater in Phoenix. You did an encore. And, her, her, and then her, um, she asked her assistant, what did you say? <laughs> he said, he saw you at Celebrity Theater. You did an encore. Okay. <laughs> That's what that one family went all crazy for. Yeah, huh? man. It was a crazy concert in um, 
Phoenix, Arizona, to the Celebrity Theater. There was a guy who ran it. His name was Clyde at the Celebrity Theater. He used to actually uh, run Rascals. The Celebrity oh, the- Theater is in the round. It's a beautiful theater in the round. Yeah, it, it turns, it's turns when, you prefer, when you perform. And it's sad because if you don't sell it out, you're going to be turned into a, a side where there's nobody there. <laughs> <laughs> I've done the show there like that. No. <laughs> that was us. That was you and I. Yeah, dude. Yeah, so it turns, man. It takes a turn. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing when Cat Williams performed. And that shit went down with him and that Mexican dude? Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember, dude, I didn't even know that shit turned. And I started walking and was like, what are you on, a treadmill, dog? <laughs> I was like, fuck, It turned, bro, like to make a big pizza on it, bro. <laughs> yeah, Oh, my man. God, dude. That was Clyde, and he owned Rascals. The comedy club. Yeah, Rascals, the comedy club. He ran it. So he got me tickets to see the celebrity, go to the celebrity theater, bro, and... That night, I was, I was, um, it was crazy, bro. Remember I told you I went home with someone? Yeah, dog. Ex- Me la pelas. Oh, my God, dude. <laughs> the ex-boyfriend showed up knocking, bro, breaking, broke down the door. <laughs> you were naked, and dog. And chased me with a knife, and I ran in the bathroom, bro, like, apocalypto, bro. <laughs> Did you say you were with a potato pillar? Oh, I, 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 I have a, a potato pillar, bro. <laughs> I said, take a moment Me la pela, bro. I'm a KP, his ass. I'm going to peel him. <laughs> This fool's trying to stab through you through the door, bro. God damn, I still I love her, dog. I still love her, bro. Why do you have to be? Why do you have to be a fat guy? <laughs> I know, huh, dog? That, that fool's all hot, huh? He's all cute, bro. <laughs> That's why, man, if you want your ex-lady back, call her first. <laughs> you know, spy on her on Google Maps or something. <laughs> you know? That's the only time a man needs a two-minute warning, bro. <laughs> yeah, man, we're on the we're on the way. You know, that's the time if a girl has a crazy boyfriend, he should give she should give the guy that she's dating one of those discs they give you at the restaurant when your table's ready. <laughs> when it starts going off, when that shit starts buzzing, bro, that means her boyfriend is near. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm t- table number five. Got need to wrap it up and leave. Or dial nine one one. That'd be perfect, bro. You know, you you with somebody? Oh shit, man, it's an Iron Man, but. <laughs> Life blinking. Okay, man, we gotta go. Time to creep. So this fool's knocking, man, knocking hard. I'm gonna kill you. And I say, yeah. hey, come on, man, I don't even know what's going on here, man. <laughs> this fool acting. I lost my coat. Okay, innocence project. So over here. it was crazy, dude. And then um, the only thing that saved me was uh, cellular phones, bro. Because she How? she ran out with her cellular phone on her hand. Okay. So she had time to call nine one one. Has this been in the eighties where there were no phones? It was just me and him, bro, fighting it out. <laughs> Naked. He goes, I'm going to shoot you through the door. I said, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and how'd you hold the door in? All right. Bro, I, I realized that he was, he was trying to huff and puff and blow the bathroom door down like fucking. Big three bad little, wolf. Three little pigs, bro. <laughs> but there was a fucking a big old war hog on the other side, bro. <laughs> a big old fat pig, bro. But he was trying to push. He never got. He never got to push the door in, you know? He was just he was too too weak. <laughs> so that means, bro, if I would open the door, I would probably would have killed him in the bathroom, you know, because I could tell him bigger than him. Right. You know, I had the you know fat dude. Just mad elbows and just angry, knees. bro. That his chin was with a hot dude, <laughs> a hot pig, a guy with stinky socks. You know, <laughs> who didn't brush his teeth all day. <laughs> this who shows up all sweet with cologne, flowers, <laughs> flowers. <laughs> Was at, the, was at the bar, <laughs> listened to Freddie Fender all night. <laughs> Until the wasted last days and wasted nights. 
<laughs> and then his fucking the bar he the bar he struck out with a bartender, hot bartender with a black eye, you know. <laughs> and she tells him, you know, bro, be a man, go get her back right now. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, she's getting piped. <laughs> Meanwhile, man, Mister Mister Free Diana Rostick is over here. <laughs> <laughs> He's like a crooner. <laughs> Doctor so, Smooth. Eh? So this fool man, finally the cops show up. And they get him, bro. But I'm still naked, dog. Didn't they give you like those, uh, you know, those like survivor uh, they give me a, blankets? They gave you a survivor blanket, bro. <laughs> <laughs> that shit said uh, Phoenix Police Department on it. <laughs> but the way I tell the story, bro, they gave me a Phoenix, the, a Phoenix police jacket, bro. The coach one. So you can see my barely see my butt like um, Donald Sutherland when he reached out for a, for, a, for, a, for a cup in Animal House. Fantastic. <laughs> full, dog. He knows. <laughs> <laughs> so he ended up going to jail, bro. He was this fool was so happy. He parked his car on her porch. He like, just drove in there, drove in, crazy, bro. Fool. Like you know, he was, he thought he to pick her up and take her back home, like officer and a gentleman, bro. <laughs> <laughs> no Richard Gere tonight. But nah, man, Felipe. It was Felipe Esparza with free tickets, you know, <laughs> to the cast, bro. It was a one man show. <laughs> but it was crazy, man. So he ended up going to jail, man, and um. The whole place was full of glass, broken, do- broken with doors. I said, "I'm out of here, man. I don't want to stay here and fucking uh, ground zero and shit." <laughs> you woke me up at like three thirty in the morning, knocking on the door. Fool, open up, dog. Help what me, the bro. Fuck? They're looking for me. I was like, "Damn, dog." So later on, they gave me the. Um, of course, you know they asked me if I want to go press charges. I said, "Chale." <laughs> Say, "Hell no, man." He don't remember how I look. Let's keep it that way. <laughs> Hell yeah, that's what's up, dude. I don't want to press charges, man. You know, it was a lover squirrel. <laughs> you just happened to be in the middle. <laughs> yeah, man. So that was my first time as a celebrity theater. I don't know how we got to this place. <laughs> but... So, yeah, man. I was there because I met Diana Ross. <laughs> After you did the uh, Dude, Santa people have no respect for her. There was people yelling out, Diana, the Camacho family loves you. And she was singing, bro, and ignoring that lady. You could tell that I want to say, shut up, Mexican lady. <laughs> you ruin it for everybody. Ruin it. Ruin it for me, and then you're going to ruin it for Cat Williams. <laughs> so what's up, fool? What you doing, man? Chilling, dog. Just doing little spots, man. dude. Getting ready to you know take off on uh, tomorrow. You ready or what? Ready, dog. You got your driver's license, bro? Because you got to drive, dog. No, I, I, my, it's active. I don't have a copy of it, but no matter what, I have my number. If I get pulled over, it's all straight, and it's valid. You sound like fucking Jose Villasenor, bro. <laughs> What's his name? Uh, Villarregosa. Oh, uh, no. Who, oh, dog? Anybody got a license tag? Oh, Luis Banuelos. Luis Banuelos. What <laughs> happened, bro? Dude, we're, we were going to Fresno, dude. dude this a stinky-ass truck, right? He had a, one of those ranch trucks. His dad has horses and shit. He has one of those ranch trucks, bro, that is, looks like one of those trucks those, those rednecks had in vacation house. Yeah, totally. You know, Texas Longhorns in the back of the trailers and shit. Blood, so, goat blood in the totally, back. Totally, dude. Totally. They slaughtered shit back there. So we get pulled over, dude, on like, you know, going up uh, the five. Going fast. Yeah, dog. take, dude, this fool's fucking hitting it like <sighs> 80. And um, we get pulled over, and this fool doesn't even have a license. He's like, you have a license, dog. He turns that to me. <laughs> And then the other fool is going, I don't have a license. He had a license. He just didn't want to give him all this motherfucker. I got a license. I'm nervous, dog. <laughs> cop asked him for a license. This fool didn't have insurance. Nothing, dog. Dude, five minutes before we got pulled over, the mom calls him. Hijo, no se lleve la camioneta. No hay documentación, por favor. Don't take the truck, hijo. <laughs> She's like, nah, mom, I'll be back. <laughs> 
<laughs> we get pulled over this fool has nothing, dog. Dude, the CHP, that's when iPhones barely came out. The CHP dude took a picture of his face, dog. Fucking grabbed a pin, fucking greased his fucking thumb, put it on a piece of paper, dog. It was crazy, dog. And then I had my license. He made me drive and it was all cool. He didn't take nobody to jail. It was all good. We got a story now, dog. <laughs> Together, dog. First road trip, dog. <laughs> God, that was fucking nuts, dog. But yeah, that fool. What's up, fool, man? Right here, dog, with the one, the only, the dog. only, bro. Got a long ass intro, bro. The living legend. The living legend. The bro. man. The myth. The man. The man most imitated. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> that uh, that impression he just did of that person sounded like a, a Mexican knee. <laughs> it's your cousin Barry. <laughs> Do it again, bro. Hey, dog. It's uh, Barry Cat's cousin, dog. <laughs> That's the way he talks. <laughs> and it's funny because a lot of people do impressions of you, and it's kind of like, all right, cool enough, dude. But, um, yeah. But do, you, do, you, do you do an impression of me? Oh, uh, no, I don't really, dude. I mean, but, um, you know, just because it's not that I just don't do impressions of other people, just like uh, people that I really love and enjoy. But, you, you know, when enjoy it, Barry, bro. No, of course, dude. But I think <laughs> too many people do it, so it's like, eh, I'm good on that one. Really? Dude. That many people do it? <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, dude. A lot of Elon dudes. Gold does a good. Yeah, dude. Hey, Elon Gold. <laughs> Elon Gold does a good. You probably my, the best. W- you one of my first clients ever when he was seventeen. <laughs> he told us the story, dude. <laughs> Who else? That's it, huh? Uh, yeah, Jeff. Uh, Neil Brennan did one. Jeff. Jeff. Jeff Keith. <laughs> and Neil Brennan. Yeah, man. So. Enjoy that. Jay Moore was the first time I heard it. Uh, doing the impression? Yeah. Oh, hell when yeah. I was on a, a guest on Jay Moore stories. Oh, totally, dude. That's awesome. I did the anniversary show with Jay where I pitched him the concept that he would interview me as me. And he did the entire podcast interviewing me as me. It was insane. Oh, that's awesome, dude. <laughs> he was do it by himself. <laughs> You're so cool with it, dude, because I don't know if people... Well, anyways, I'll shut up. Go with the intro. No, the reason why I'm cool with it, I'm sorry to interrupt, is because something happened to me, and I said, I'm, I never want to be like this. When Caliendo started doing impersonations of John Madden, um, it was very exciting to me. One day, I saw John Madden sitting at a table uh, with two very large men, presumably bodyguards or whatever, and I sat down, and I said, John, uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. I'm Barry. Uh, what do you think of uh, Frank Caliendo's impression of you? He's like, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Hate it. And then the security guards proceeded to tap me on the shoulder. And get out of here. So I never wanted to be like that. Okay, awesome. I get it. I think um, um, also Frank Caliendo couldn't do that on Fox News while John Madden was employed there. Oh, really? So he had a little clause. You can't be yeah. doing that shit? Oh, shit. You could only do it on um, NFL. What's up? So we're going to introduce our guest, bro. Yes, sir. Our guest right here, man, you know? A legend. From Boston. In his own right. I almost said Boston, California, but look at this. From Boston, Massachusetts. Is that how you say it? Massachusetts. That's how I say it like a Native American. Now, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. I kind of look like the crying Indian from the trash commercials. (laughs) Without the (laughs) teary. You do kind of, man. Got a little Cleveland Indian in him. Yeah, man. He, he used that be- beach, that uh, bleach cream. That Sammy Sosa. Hey. Whoa, have you seen that fool? Oh, that fool's oh, tripping me out. Oh, my God. Dude. And little Kim, dog. Little Kim. Nah, 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 man. Um, Sammy Sosa? Sammy Sosa is pale, bro. Uh, that it's fool's like- turned into a hologram. <laughs> it's 
like a light gray. It's trippy off. It's weird, and his eyes are green. Like fucking vellum or some shit. Vellum paper. More like, oh, it's weird, man. We're like, how did his skin get so pale like that? It ain't cream, right? I think it is treatments like that in pills because supposedly he has a cr- uh, crazy skin condition. But after he retired, come on, dog. It's probably the same skin condition like, like when you get to the white spots all around your body and he goes, fuck it, let's do the whole body. <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to walk around looking like a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> That's a different type of shit, but I mean, I don't know. But nevertheless. So, man, we're going to introduce our guest, man. Yes, sir. Super manager of some of comedy's biggest legends. Bro. Hell yeah, dog. Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle. Dave Cook. Tracy Morgan, Louis C.K., Jay Moore, Bill Bellamy, Whitney Cummins, Felipe Esparza, <laughs> Jim Brewer. Hell yeah, dog. And a lot of, Melissa Villasenor. Yeah. Yeah, man. Oh, oh Barry is cool. <laughs> he does a good Melissa Villasenor. <laughs> I've never heard an impression of an impressionist. <laughs> oh, first time for everything, you know, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> What's up with that check? <laughs> Checking the mailbox. <laughs> All I hear is echoes. <laughs> I shout out to Melissa Whittier's finest. What's up, fool? Chilling, dog. We got Barry Katz. How are you doing, Barry Katz? I feel fantastic. I firstly want to tell you something, and yes. I'm, I'm not. So I don't know you as well, Rodrigo, so I'm no, sorry. Sir. It's all gravy. But I just want to say this about you, and this is all sincerity, no comedy. I just watched you for the first 10 or 15 minutes of what you've been doing here. And if anybody knows anything about comedy or anything about stream of consciousness comedy, <laughs> that was brilliant. That was brilliant what you just did. And to watch you weave those stories together that seemingly came out of a Rolodex in your head was very, very Adam Carolla, Howard Stern esque. And that, hey now. so those, so that 10 or 15 minutes that I just witnessed was as strong as a, a stream of consciousness, radio or internet or podcast comedy that you will ever see. That was at the highest, highest level. That was unbelievable. I, I really was sitting here and you didn't hear me talk or la- I was in awe. I was just watching you because I don't know that side of you, believe it or not, even as your former manager. I never saw that side of you. And you, by the way, never showed that side of you to anybody until you started this podcast. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's true, right, fool? Yeah, just, it just you know, us or, you know, behind the scenes or whatever, but right here. Fuck. Right here, man. That's what's up, fool. That's why people love that shit. I mean, when you look at, when you look at anything in terms of comedy, there's many different ways to look at it. But if you look at the laughs per minute... That you just had right there. I mean, that was literally like there was like a laugh every like seven seconds. <laughs> Trying to keep it flowing, man. <laughs> Great sequence. <laughs> Could you do me a favor, uh, Rodrigo? I just want you to do this for me. Yes, sir. Could you def- if you were in an urban dictionary, <coughs> I want you to define the word fool for your audience as used in the context of this show. Damn. If you were to look at it in the urban dictionary. Well, it's just a kaleidoscope of a neighborhood guy that, you know I mean? of different people, you know, and what the representative of foolishness in the neighborhood, you know, the creator of laughs, of lovability. You know? Now we're going down the, you know, the Barry angle. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, because when you say to somebody, he's on the street, what's up, else? fool? What do you, what does that mean? Like, it's like a dude? dude. Yeah. It's like a dude. It's what's just, up, dude? It's dude, just like, hey, dude. man. Yeah, yeah, like, dude. Okay, that's it. What a cool fool. Yeah, a cool fool. There's just, you know, a little bit of extra shine on him. You know what I mean? 
Have you ever, Felipe, gone up to anybody and said, what's up, fool, and they got pissed off? Yeah, you? but they're idiots, man. <laughs> yeah, then you got that other, that <laughs> other fool. <laughs> they're idiots, man. <laughs> Double-edged sword. They never, nobody has ever told them hello ever. <laughs> Those girls are used to being greeted by a handshake. <laughs> they didn't know what a fist bump is. They call it rocket. I had such a great time with you. I don't know what the feedback has been from your audience, but it was just people have reached out to me. Just amazing. What have they said? <laughs> tell us. Tell us. You no, tell. just a, whenever you're. But it was in, a fun podcast. Yeah. I mean, did you? Because it was a side of you that you're probably your audience doesn't see. No, they don't. And did they? Were they like, what are you doing? Or were they like, I like this side of you? Oh, they liked it. A lot of people, man, I love you even more now. Because it's just more stuff, dude, yeah. to add to your, uh, you know, your resume of, the, of your life and your experiences that you yeah. uh, happen to pull out on that podcast, there, Barry. Great job, by the way. Yeah, man. Thanks, man. It was so, it was so great. I mean, I just, I was like stunned by it too because I, you know, how much I love you. Yeah, man. And when you're representing somebody and you and you you're on the business side, and sometimes there's this horrible thing about our business, and I always say this, you know, love the business. Don't fall in love with the business. And one of the things about working with Felipe, which is uh, interesting that I'm saying, as, as Lisa is here, is that I really fell in love with working with uh, Felipe because, you know, you got this huggable, lovable guy. It brought back a lot of memories to me about Tracy Morgan and how I met him when he was, you know, down and out and living in the projects and really a tough, tough life. And I thought to myself, God, you know, I, I've done this before. I can do this again. And I, and if I'm going to do it again, I want to do it with this guy. And so, and so when the relationship stops, it's, it, it is heartbreaking, but I've never been the kind of person who's like, I'm, I'm not going to talk to that guy. I'm never going to be, I don't want to see that guy. I don't want to do whatever. I still feel as strongly about him today as I did when I was representing him, and even as strongly as I did the day I got the call that I wasn't going to be working with him anymore, because sometimes things happen and you can't, you know, you can't quantify why or if you want to go down the list. In the end, as a manager, you have to look in the mirror and you have to say, look, there's something about me, even though we've accomplished great things together, that doesn't make this person feel safe as safe anymore. And there's another person that's making me feel safer and I'm going to go in that direction or I'm going to feel safer on my own. And so I have to accept that. But the fact is, is I love the relationship I have with him. I'm so proud of what we accomplished together and I'll never, no one can ever take that away from us. And oh, I, yeah. and I know that he would never, if a comic were to come up to him and say, oh, listen, I'm thinking uh, of working with a manager. Who do you think I should work with? I know that he would recommend me. And so that's the thing that I take away from it that makes me happy. There's no love lost. No. And Paul Rodriguez, too. Hey! <laughs> that's hey right. You with Barry Cass, too, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. Eat <laughs> <Ninja> your Barry. <laughs> <laughs> you started off as a stand-up? That's right. Or playing with the Dallas Mavericks? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Dirk is in the house. We got Dirk here, bro. I get How many memes have you? I've seen you. I, I made a meme. I'm one of the memes. I made a meme with you and the Mavericks. Really? Yeah, I'm just. I, and I put because they had just one, and I put it about an undeniable shot. <laughs> I get recognized right? like ten times a week as Dirk Nowitzki. I get free lunches. I gotta tell you a story that I hope you don't mind me telling. Because telling go for it. Because it's uh, I've. I've I don't know if I should share something I've shared before, but I don't care. Go for it, brother. Share it here. So it's at the height of Dane Cook's career. Things are going crazy. We're doing like arenas. (laughs) We're doing arenas all over the place. Put the hot chicks in the front. (laughs) Give them the backstage pass. Make sure they're over at AT, please. Check IDs. Somebody hide my lady. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck JB. (laughs) <laughs> See the laughs per second. <laughs> and so it's the height. He's doing the Coliseum in Las Vegas. And, Coliseum. And wow. it's a 4,400-seat uh, venue, and he did three shows that weekend. They were all sold out. And we're having lunch. at the, They actually closed off a part of the restaurant for him at a place called, I think it was called Tao, where they had this huge Buddha, like like literally 20 feet high, and we're sitting at a table right in front of this Buddha, and there's nobody in this area at all. You can't see a human. And I'm sitting with him, we're having a great conversation. It's wonderful. And all of a sudden, I see this beautiful woman with a camera, like sort of around the Buddha, and a guy that looks like um, The Rock, only with a shaved head and a uh, hundred times more tattoos. And he's walking up to the table, and Dan goes, here we go. And comes up to the table and says, listen, uh, do you mind if uh, I get uh, an autograph and a photo? And Dan's like, uh, no, not not at all. And the guy's like, no, no, I'm talking about Dirk. <laughs> <laughs> Palm this basketball. <laughs> and I'm like, look, I'm, I'm not Dirk. And the beautiful girl in this mini dress is there with the camera. I'm like, look, I'm not Dirk. I'm sorry. I'm not Dirk. Uh, I, I'm sorry. And, 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 <laughs> that's funny. I wish I were Dirk Dinger. I'm neither long nor fat like you. And I think he knows what I'm talking about. We were talking about a podcast, bro. And then I said, I'm, I goes, I'm, I goes, you know, I'm not care. I found out that women don't care about long. They care about fat. Girth. Girth. One time I yelled out, man, my penis is not long. It's just fat. And some woman from far away yelled out, that's okay. <laughs> I could work with that. So I want to finish this. So he shakes his hand in his head in disgust and he walks away and we're there for another five minutes and comes around again. He says, look, uh, man, uh, Dirk, could you just sign this for me? It'd be (laughs) great. And just take a photo uh, from my girl. Take the picture. I'm like, look, man, I'm sorry. I'm not Dirk. Everybody. I'm I'm not. I'm not. I'm not him. I'm not as tall as him. Look, I'm older. I'm older. He, He says, he's like, whatever. He walks away. He's pissed off again. We're eating again five minutes later, and I'm across from Dane like I'm across from you, like you're sitting across a table from somebody, not to the side. Right. And I'm talking to him, and his eyes go really wide, like you're seeing a ghost. And all of a sudden, a hand goes around my neck, and the guy whispers in my ear, Listen, man, I just got out of fucking prison, okay, pal? Don't embarrass me in front of my girl. Sign the Fucking autograph. 
Stop lying I'm to me. I'm like, okay, I'm Dirk, man. Where's the thing here? And I just signed it number 41 and took the picture and uh, got out of there. I'm Dirk, man. <laughs> he God should say, how you spot the whiskey? <laughs> damn, dude. The gentle choke. Yeah, so that was that story. So, Man. Some woman after a show thought Rodrigo was that kid from the Nickelodeon show. <laughs> Drake and Josh. Drake and Josh. <laughs> They're <laughs> huge. Yeah. Leave me alone, huh? Actually, uh, that's, that's how um, Rodrigo hooks up with chicks that were dur- that were young during that age, and now they're 25, 24. You're like Drake and Josh. <laughs> I got to tell you a funny, another funny story. You'll love this. I, I met with uh, Gene Simmons once and um, from Kiss. <laughs> And I tell, I said, tell me like one of the weirdest things. We're cancers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's making a joke because Gene Simmons is Israeli. Um, (laughs) And so um, he he starts telling me the story. He says, listen, we did a reunion tour at Madison Square Garden a few years back. And when I'm in New York, I, you know, everything's open late. I love to go into one of those supermarkets. It's open 24 hours. It's like, you know, literally three in the morning. I'm walking, taking my stuff. All of a sudden, I hear, Gene! Gene! <laughs> He's looking all around. He can't can't see anybody. He's like, what is, where, where is that coming from? He keeps doing his Gene! Your Brad Willow on the table. <laughs> Gene! He looks over, and he doesn't see anybody except this old woman in a walker with the with the green tennis balls on the bottom, like, you know, just going, like, the woman's like 80 years old. It's Pearl. He's like, uh, he's like, what's up, honey? Come here, Gene. He comes over there, says, you remember me? It's Joyce. He's like, no, I don't remember you. Remember your first time you guys toured Madison Square Garden? Your bodyguards pulled me out of the crowd. You fucked me in the back room. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. damn. It was like 37 years ago. She was part of the Detroit Rock Tour. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Damn. With the fucking tennis balls on the bottom of the Round two. (laughs) I know. (laughs) She can't even feel a thing, dog. No. God damn. damn, fool. Damn. Fuck, talk about fucking skeletons in the closet. I get emails sometimes like that, man. You know my mom. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I always like, I don't know, I take my watch to respond, but I go to their pages, see if this fool looks like me. Nah. <laughs> With a lazy eye. <laughs> Try whatever. to get in, huh? But now, sometimes like they just know me, like, you, you went to school with my mom or whatever, you know? But then I go to the mom, I don't even recognize him, bro. Huh. Old photo, please. <laughs> Time changes, fools, dog. You got larger. <laughs> and uh, so you started doing a stand-up, Barry? Yeah, First I started. Um, I'm trying to tell the story uh, in a short way, but my my dad passed away when I was four, and when oh, I was wow. a teenager, I explored in the basement, and I pried open this file cabinet, and there were all these musty albums, and there was... Every single album was a black artist. Diana Ross, uh, Louis Armstrong, um, Dinah Washington, just you, you, the Supreme, everything you can imagine. There were three albums of white artists in there. Uh, the Smothers Brothers, Crabs Walk Sw- Sideways and Lobsters Walk Straight, the one where they, and the, the album cover was banging the guitar over the guy's head. Jonathan Winter's Comedy and Tragedy. 
awesome. and Bob Newhart, the button-down mind. Oh, wow. But I didn't have a record player. We were poor, and there was nothing working. And so I don't know if this was prevalent when you were growing up in your area, but we had what's called S&H green stamps in my area, where every dollar that you spent at the supermarket, they'd give you a green stamp, and you'd paste them in these books. And the We books, have blue chip stamps. There you go. Food stamps or blue chip stamps. Well, you, and, you, you, you paste them on the corner or on the side, and you collect, and then they give you points, and you can either get appliances that's or, exactly the same thing. So you collect the number of books, and I think it was like 30 books was a record player, <laughs> one of those fold-down record players. Nice. And I collected, I went and got it, and I started playing the music, but I really wasn't getting into as much. But I loved the comedy, and Bob Newhart was the routines that, that spoke to me. What's weird about that is that if you were to see somebody do like Bob Newhart's kind of dialogue comedy, which the closest it comes to your audience, if you if your audience would ever Google uh, Ellen DeGeneres Conversations with God, her first Tonight Show, was a little five-minute bit, where you carry on a conversation with somebody. You don't do the impression of them. You just do it. So in other words, one of the first bits I remember from this album, I hope I can do it, and you'll see what, what I'm talking about where it's not like gut-busting comedy. It's like you think the person was bombing, but it was like, uh, picture a car, I'm the driving instructor, and that seated next to me is a woman driver. Back then, a woman driver was like, you guys would probably shit on Asian drivers or something like that. <laughs> and then he'd go with it. He'd say, uh, how you doing? Uh, your name's Mrs. Webb. Uh, let me read down here and familiarize myself with the uh, case. Uh, your instructor was Mr. Adams. So that's correct. Yeah. Uh, how, how, how fast were you going when Mr. Uh, Adams uh, jumped from the car? Uh, s- s- 75. And, and where was that, Mrs. Webb? In your driveway. And that's the kind of comedy he did. And the titters, it was these little laughs all throughout. But he, what people don't know is when Warner Brothers Record asked Bob Newhart to do an album, he wasn't a stand-up comic. He was a sketch guy on radio. So he said, okay, I'll do it. He set it up in like a 150-seat club, and he did it, and it turned out to be Warner Brothers Record's first gold record in history. And who introduced him to his wife? Buddy Hackett. And that record, supposedly, he never even performed the material when he recorded no. it. And that's how you know, groundbreaking it was. Because on another podcast, uh, Richard Pryor met up with him one time. And he's all, I stole your album. And uh, he's all, how much you get for that album? And he's all, uh, a quarter? Everybody got a quarter? Nigga, give me a quarter. Here you go, Bob Newhart. Thank you. <laughs> so, nevertheless. That's awesome. And, so, and then I started memorizing this driving instructor routine. I did it at a talent show at my high school. El Canale. And then when I went to BU... Uh, Boston University, there was a blizzard in 1978. That's how old I am. And it was a federal emergency. And if you're anybody listening to your podcast is familiar with Boston, Kenmore Square, it's an area where three major streets come off of it. There's uh, Brookline Avenue where Fenway Park is. There's Beacon Street where all those colleges are. And then there's Commonwealth Avenue where Boston University and then later on Boston College is. And so I'm in the I'm in Kenmore Square in the mouth of this this impasse with all these three peop, three roads and no one on the streets no one and I hear laughter and I look and this is what's crazy you talk about fate or whatever I look there's a brownstone pub that's still there today called Crossroads I open up the door, and right when you open the door, have you ever been to one of those places where right when you open up the door, there's stairs that go up, like not just one flight, 
but like seemingly two flights. So when you're walking up the stairs, your eye level is just at stairs. But I'm hearing the laughter louder and louder. And as I go up, I start seeing the bottom of the feet of people sitting. And there's about 30 people there. And I peek up. And there's a guy on stage who looks like a young Larry from the Three Stooges. And he's playing a guitar. And he's singing, Rachel, my dear, wish she was here. Oh, how I loved her. Having sex with Rachel was amazing. It was like a concert. Frisbees <laughs> would be flying around the room. Beach balls would hit me in the head. And every time Rachel wanted more, she'd light a match. <laughs> Thanks. Good night. Walked past me from the applause out the door. I'm like, I, I, I run down, look out the door. He's gone. Turns out that was Stephen Wright. That was the first comedian I ever saw live. So I ran to the manager. I said, where do I perform? Can I perform here? There's an open mic on Monday. I go to the open mic. Okay, this is crazy. So it's packed at the open mic. The host is a guy named Ross Bickford, who they called the taxi driver. I'm watching him, and it's, you know, his routines, they seem familiar to me, but I can't really place what's going on. Comedian Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I go on. He's he, he, standing there. I was on the swim team. I'd shaved my head. I was in good shape. I looked like a giant thumb, as Steve Middleman would say. And... um and he says, you know how people introduce you sometimes that you, in the beginning of your career is like, hey, this guy, uh, I don't know much about him. He's a funny gay guy. I'm just kidding. He's not funny. And I hear he's hung like a buffalo. Please welcome Barry Katz. And I go on. I'm like stunned. This guy eviscerated me. <laughs> I make some joke about being with him last night to try to defuse it. And I go on and I start and I say, I'd like to do a Bob Newhart routine for you. The driving instructor means a lot to me. And this is how it goes. All heart. And I did it. And what was amazing about it, it killed a hundred times harder than the album. <laughs> you should have recorded it. You wrote it. <laughs> and so, and so, I'm like thinking to myself, how can this be? This is a. It made me feel good. I felt good about it. I walked off stage. I walked down the stairs. Ross Bickford chases after me. He says, "Kid, come here for a second. I got to talk to you. That was amazing. I mean, nobody ever comes in here and does this." I said, "Thanks, man." I'm at BU. He said, listen, let me just give you a little bit of advice. I said, sure. What is it? He said, listen, when you're doing somebody else's routine, don't say their name before the routine. Just take the fucking bit. Okay. Take the fucking bit as your own pal. He was citing sources over and here. And so I was listening to the guy and I walked out. I was like, oh, fuck, I got to write my own material now. <laughs> and so I started writing my own material. In honor of... <laughs> and I wrote material and then I went to another comedy club which was called the Ding Ho it was a Chinese restaurant slash comedy club historic in Inman Square Cambridge where, oh, Lenny, yeah, where Lenny Clark who you know from Rescue Me and um, Larry Kett hosted the show and there was they would do a thing where all these great acts like Stephen Wright and Paula Poundstone but also local guys who were amazing like Bob Steve Sweeney Bob Goldthwaite uh who was my roommate, by the way. I'll share that with you in a little bit. And so I go there, and I do, and you'd go in between these amazing, imagine doing an open mic where, like, Bill Burr goes on for 10 minutes, then a comic for five who doesn't know what they're doing, then Louis C.K. for 10 minutes, then five minutes a new guy. That's how they did it. Oh, yeah, dude. And so I went on there, did my own material for the first time, and it killed again. And I was like, wow, this is this is easy. This is great. A star is born. And again, I walk out the door, 
And the same thing happens again. Lenny Clark is running after me. I'm fucking scared for my life. He says, Catsy, Catsy, I don't know where you came from. No open mic comes in here and does that. That's unbelievable. How many times have you been on stage? I said, this is my second time. You got to come back next week and open the show. I said, awesome. I said, listen, man, this is this place. It looks like a local place. I don't, I don't, I, I don't think I can write five new ma- minutes of material in that much time. And this is where it all came crashing down as far as what people were like in the comedy business. Then for he looks at me, he says, "You dumb Jew bastard, <laughs> you stupid fucking kike." You dumb, dumb fucking heeb. Just come back here, open my show, do the same bit. <laughs> God, the great Lenny Clark. So huh? I go back there the next week, and I'm sitting there, and people are coming in. It's the same fucking people. Well, I go on. I, op- I open the. Sh- I go on. I open the show. Literally, there are tumbleweeds going across the crickets. You couldn't hear. Figure the worst bomb you've ever heard. Nothing. It's not even anybody commenting. It's just people staring at you like you, like the dog looks at the fucking answering machine. That kind of stare. You know what I mean? And so, if there was an answering machine. And so, I walk out. I'm demoralized. I don't go on stage for a while. And then I finally get back into it again. And then I start uh, running comedy clubs. And I start taking over comedy clubs and hosting. Because when I hosted... I felt like if the things weren't going well, I could just bring up the next person. <laughs> but I became a really good host. I had this technique that I did, which was kind of odd because I really don't have a great memory for faces and names. But I would do this thing where I would do, I would talk to the crowd. I was a crowd work guy, but I wouldn't do, you know, I wasn't hacky. I would do, I would come up with a lot of stuff like he would do. But I also had my Rolodex. But I would talk to people and then let's say I would improvise with them and they were an accountant and then I would bring uh, Felipe on. He would do a 10-minute set. And then when he came off, I'd go on, let's hear it for Felipe Esparza, the accountant in the front row, the people that hate me back there, Joe from Revere. And every single guy that I talked I talked to another person in between by the 10th person that went on, it was like, Let's hear it for Rodrigo, the accountant <laughs> in the front row, the people that hate me, Joe from Avere, Sally from Needham, and and I tie everything in, so it was was great. And then um, and then I ended up making a decision uh, after a tragedy happened to me. I don't mean to bring down the show. It's all good. But um, I was married to a girl who was twenty three, and she passed away. Damn. And so I. This thing happens sometimes, this negative, positive thing happens sometimes when something horrible happens to you. People around you, they want to be nice to you. They want to hug you. They want to tell you everything's going to be okay. But it's like, it's almost like being like if you're Justin Bieber and you go out and you can't go anywhere without somebody wanting to do something or take. So everywhere I went, people would come up to me, hey man, sorry. And it just kept happening over and over. They were being nice and wonderful. But it just was too much of a memory. So I got in my car. This is an amazing thing. I got in my car and I just made a decision one day. I, I don't even know time frame or thinking about it. I just got up in the morning, got in my car, and I drove to New York City, the 79th Street boat basin exit. I took the left. I went as far as I could go. There was a, a, a restaurant bar. I sat at the bar. I opened up the yellow pages. I looked at realtors. I gave the number and I waited. A realtor called back. First apartment I went, I went to see. 
82nd and 2nd Avenue. I took it. It was $935. Uh, and uh, I went down to the village. There was a club I knew that Eddie Brill had been working on that was leaving called the Paper Moon. I went to the owners. I said, I can make this club a success. They gave me the club. And I took it over from Rick Messina, who was now now managing Tim Allen and Drew Carey. But back then he was a booker. And then, I, and then I started, Damn. just opened the club. And the first comedian on stage at my comedy club who helped me set up the wires and the lighting and everything was an 18-year-old redheaded comic named Louis C.K., who was my first management client ever. Jesus. Crazy. A new wiring. <laughs> <laughs> he was an engineer of sorts, you know? Louis was uh, an amazing young guy. He was always the first one... Remember the uh, the first Mac computer that looked like a, a beige box that was maybe eight inches by eight inches by eight inches. It was black and white. Like he had one of those. He like he he always he always put every dollar he had into his business, and he never had anything. No matter how much money he made, he never had anything. I remember. I let him borrow my car, which was a 67 Camaro that I bought for $200 and I fixed up for thousands of dollars. I lent him my car and he takes her. And one time I went away uh, back to Boston for about a month and doing business there and then to L.A. And I come back and I'm like, uh, you know, whenever you get a chance, you can give me the car. He's like, Barry, I'm like, I, I, I can't give you the car. I said, why, why can't you give me the car? Well, I just, you know, you know how I feel about Sarah. Now he was in love with Sarah Silverman. Every comedian who was there at that time She's loved Sarah Silverman. Everyone was in love with her, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Whatever it is, and then so I'm like, uh, I'm like, what? What does Sarah cuts his arm every night? <laughs> Could be. I'm like, what does Sarah have to do with my car? <laughs> well, Barry, I just you know I, I wanted to you know help her out, and uh, I said I don't understand. Well, I, I lent her your, your car. Well, that's okay. Just you get it from her and give it. Um, she, uh, she parked it on, on the wrong street and, um, it got towed. Well, that's okay. Well, let's just go down the tow yard and we'll go get it. Um, hey, well, it, um, this is the thing they went to auction last week and I didn't have the heart to tell you and, uh, your car got uh, auctioned off and it's gone. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> so, so was your car. <laughs> and him being your first client, that's where you started off, uh, and and that's your career of managing comics and uh I I had this thing where when I was in Boston I had two different kinds of thought process when I saw a comedian. When I was in Boston, I started booking one nighters. I had like fifty one nighters in comedy clubs all over New England. And in, in Boston and New England, the kind of comedian that will go over well has to be somebody who can go into a room where there's a bar in the room the Celtics or Bruins are playing or the Patriots are playing on a TV with the sound off, but everybody's watching and there's distractions. It's not like these rooms are set up for comedy. So you have to be a very high energy, crazy kind of act. That's not as necessarily well respected. So you weren't going to, so you, you, book, you, you book nothing but Dublins around the world. Yeah, like like, like a Dublin. So you, had, rowdiness. so you had to put people yeah. in that were high energy. So the people that like like the respected comedians like Janine Garofalo or people like that, they didn't get as much work from me because they were, you know, it was hard. These rooms were hard. When I 
when I came to New York, I realized the kind of comedy that I the people that I wanted to manage were always it was very simple. I I, I love great stand up comedian, but I wanted people who could do film and television and cross over seamlessly to all areas of the business and be able to do that. And that was what was most important to me. I, I don't get me wrong; if there's something amazing. Uh, to represent a comedian who just does, you know, if I could have represented Bill Hicks, I would have been in heaven. You know, he didn't act really that much or do anything, but he was a tremendous stand-up comic, one of the best. But if you take somebody like a Bill Hicks now, the hybrid version of Bill Hicks, and I hope he wouldn't be offended by this, is Jim Jeffries. So you have Jim Jeffries, who's a hybrid version. He's worldwide, and Hicks was worldwide. He did a lot of stuff all over. But but Jim Jeffries appeals to everybody all over the world. He's got an incredible edge. His material is like no others. But it is offensive. But he also can act and create his own television show. And he can do films. He can do things like that. Whereas, And that's what I look for in somebody who can, can cross over and, do, and wants to work as hard at that as they do stand-up. Because the thing about stand-up, and for your audience just to share this, because uh, I think it is valuable, there's a there's a thing about stand up that's really really a negative for stand ups is that when you get funny when you get really funny and again I don't I don't know you as well as I know Felipe so I'm not saying that you're not funny no, okay. I'm, 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 but I'm talking about you Felipe when you go on stage when Felipe goes on stage like let's say he does does Vasilia is that how you pronounce it Vasilia Vasilia yeah. when he does that show he is not going to prepare for that show. He is not going to spend any time sitting down at 8 o'clock in the morning to 6 p.m. writing out his whole set and doing whatever. He's going to go to that gig, and he's going to eat before. He's going to go to the dressing room. He's not even going to have a set list. He's just going to go up, and he's going to kill, and he's probably going to get a standing ovation. And he's going to work one hour that day, and he's going to get paid a lot of fucking money. And so the art of stand-up comedy has this horrible cracked foundation for a lot of comedians psychologically that they don't have to work hard to be successful and make money once they do it in acting you have to get up at six in the morning and you have to study your craft you have to read true or false by david mamet you have to read read sid field screenplay you have to go to your acting classes you have to cry in your acting classes you have to have a guy like larry moss gut you like a fucking fish in front of 27 other people trying to get an acting gig so you can be prepared to go in a room with a casting director who is reading to you a script like a functionally special needs person and you need to go in and get that gig and the thing about most comics is who get to a certain point they make so much money they're like ah fuck it i don't want to read somebody else's words and tap dance for that motherfucker in that room with the big suit on and the tie so he can tell me that I'm going to... No, I'll make my own fucking money. But the problem is, is that it only lasts so long. And, you know, granted, let's face it, Rickles, it's lasted a long time. He doesn't really act in that many things, although he was a great actor. But the fact is, is that for the most part, you got to figure out how to monetize every area of your life. you got to figure out how to write a book. Well, does anybody read books anymore? Well, if you talk to Dr. Phil, they read 30 million of them. Okay, well, i got to figure out how to do podcasts and monetize that, and then you realize your new talents and what are your talents that were dormant. You do your stand-up. You can be in a situation where you can create content for YouTube and you can make money there. 
you can do your own specials and sell them off your your site and you can act in film and television you can create acting reels and acting pieces with your own money and your friends who do it look at these cameras here I've got cameras here that are the size of my thumb or the size of your unit and the thing is is that you can do things now that most people can't do i'll give you an example for your audience and they might shoot me for doing this uh, there's a short uh, that you should go to uh, now if you want to pause this podcast for a second for two minutes called celery, like the vegetable. And you type in celery, F like Frank, N like Nancy, D like dog. It's a two-minute video. It has about two million views by a group in Chicago, three guys, uh, all um, really talented guys. It's the lowest amount of, video, of views that they got on any one of their videos. And there's a reason why when you see it. But when you do see that this thing, you're going to notice that this thing has in it something that I talk about all the time. Holy shit moments. And if you can create holy shit moments, even if they turn off your audience, and even if they gross out some of your audience, but if you can get that happening, people are going to talk about you. This video has 1.8 million views, and it's the lowest one they have. There's a reason why there's the lowest amount it has, because of the way the country thinks and the message in this video, which I'm not going to share with your audience. You'll have to look at it. But when you come back to the podcast, you'll know that the reason why Felipe is where he is right now and doing as well as he is is because he created those moments. He created those holy shit moments, and when he does the live shows, he still creates them. But how long does that last? And what do you have to do before some other motherfucker comes up and people are like, yeah, I love Felipe, but now there's a new guy that I like. And then you notice the next time you go out, 15% of your audience isn't there. And then the next time you go, there's there's like half a crowd. And the next time you go, it's a third. And the next time your agent says, hey, they don't want you back unless you do a door deal. You have to create things. You know, if you look at like, for instance, and I think if Ray Romano were sitting here, he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't mind me saying this. Ray Romano essentially <laughs> created Everybody Loves Raymond with Bill Rosenthal. But at the time, um, the way showrunners worked, they fought for getting the created by uh, credit themselves. That's the way it worked. Matt Williams on Roseanne the same way because it protected you in the future, God forbid, if anything went down and you had a stronger voice. So Ray wasn't the creator of the show, even though technically he knows that he was a big part of creating it. When Ray goes out and does personal appearances, he does incredibly well. Probably sells out 3,000 seaters, 4,000 seaters, whatever. But Louis C.K. can sell out arenas. He sell, sells out arenas because he created, starred, wrote, executive produced, directed, did the music. And what's weird about our audiences, and I don't even understand this because you wouldn't think that'd be the case, but they know the difference and they love the fact to rally around somebody who is a creator, somebody who is gutting it out every aspect of it. Because in this new world of new media, what Louis C.K.'s show is, is like similar to a YouTube video, except he's just doing it in a series. And people love when people create and do their own thing, whether it's six seconds on Vine or it's a series and you'll find that most people who create and star and executive produce their own shows their audiences are much huger jim jeffries legit you go to see jim jeffries it's packed chappelle the chappelle show he can sell out anything 
Chappelle doesn't have a Twitter account. He doesn't have a website. You look on clout with K-L-O-U-T dot com. This is a social media ranking system. Okay. I am ranked three times higher than Dave Chappelle on social media. It doesn't make any difference because he's a genius and he created a show that created the holy shit moments <laughs> and all he has to do, he doesn't even have to do anything. He just puts a show up at a theater. They don't even advertise. It's sold out in a second because if you create those moments and you're the guy behind the scenes doing everything, people know and they want to see you and they want to go rally around you. And that's if, if I'm Felipe in my mind, my next move is how do I create star executive produce and write my own series where I blow people the fuck away. And once he does that, Get a helmet. It'll all be over. Yeah, man. It's time to start the rocket ship, Doc. Give him some Ray Romano, bro. Oh, uh, Ray, uh, yeah. Or Fred Stola. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Barry. What a pleasure. Very historical and memorable mind. <laughs> um, how'd you hook up with Chappelle? Uh, Chappelle. Living pizzas. <laughs> <laughs> Man, he got pepperoni. That was one of his first bits ever. Will you tell that bit? I won't do. I won't do it as well. Full, I was um, I was barely open micing probably, and I was watching like a, a Comedy Central showing um all their Pepsi comedy specials, like because they were sponsored by Pepsi and Dorito, Dorito comedy special, and live at um at um Caroline's. Okay, and I saw Dave Chappelle, young ass fool, bro. He said, um, "This is how you deliver a pizza in the hood." That fool goes in there and he kicks the door down. And he goes, "Where am I, motherfucker? Give me the fucking wonder for the pizza right now." <laughs> I'll point a gun at him yeah. and shit. Yeah, point the gun and put the. All right, put the money on the table. Yep, yeah, here's put your the pizza. money on the table, man. I don't all trust right. you, man. I'm gonna back out of here real quick. And, and that's back in the times where they're jacking the pizza dudes in the yeah. hood, dog. They don't even go, dude. Yeah, so I I uh, I had this club, like I said, that I took over in in New York City in Greenwich Village on West Third Street between Thompson and Sullivan, next to the firehouse where anderson cooper now lives and right next to il molino which was a famous uh, italian restaurant and and two blocks around the corner uh is the comedy cellar and uh two blocks straight is the famous blue note uh club jazz club and then around the corner is the was the old village gate which was an incredibly famous place it was a great area and so uh, I took it over and I had a manager who was an NYU student called Jason. His name was Jason Steinberg. He's a manager now. Great, great guy, great manager. And he was managing the club and he called me. He said, listen, a kid came on the open mic tonight on Monday. I want to bring him back on Tuesday and come see you. I want you to see him. And so I went uh, the next night and I should probably share the story from the perspective of the last time I sat down with Chappelle which was about a year or so ago, maybe two years ago. Actually, that's not true. I, I He invited me to Montreal, and I, I was back with him backstage when he did shows last year. But this was when I actually had lunch with him. I'm at Real Food Daily in Santa Monica, and I sit down, and he says, do you know what uh, month it is, the significance? I said, I don't know, Black History Month? He said, no, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I can't really remember if he said it this way, but I think he said something like, uh, jokes, Barry. I think he said something. It's been like 25 years since you first met me. You remember the day you first met me? 
And I said, yes, I do. I remember it like yesterday. This is what happened. Jason Steinberg told you to come on Tuesday. I meet you before the show. I meet you right inside the club, in the middle of the club, before the show starts. I shake your hand. I say, it's nice to meet you. I want to represent you. I said, I think you are the future of comedy. You're going to be one of the biggest film and television stars out there. You're going to change the way people look at comedy. I'm shaking his hand as I'm telling him this. And I said, uh, and you said, well, you don't even know me. You've never even seen footage of me. You don't know what I perform. You don't know what I'm like. I said, I feel it. Shaking your hand is like that movie, The Dead Zone. I can, I can, I can see the future foresight and, um, powder. And so, and so right when I said that, you know, when somebody's at a a table and there's like silverware and plates and somebody slaps the table real hard and the silverware kind of shakes and and people kind of turn around and he slaps his hand and he's like, that's right. That's right, Barry. And it haunts me. It haunts me. <laughs> Every fucking day I think about that bear. And I'm like, Dave, Dave, I just I just sat down here. I'm just I'm just sitting down. And then he went into solemn Dave and he's like I'm sorry, man. It's just every time I think about that moment, I say to myself, How the fuck did he know? <laughs> How do you know? And so that was uh that was that part of the story of how I met him. But this is even funnier. I said that I well, I it think it's so funnier, funny. but maybe you won't think it's. I said, Dave, I have something to share with you. I'm I'm sorry I haven't shared this with you, but I, I got a call about five years ago from Doug Herzog, who then was the president of Comedy Central, and he called me about you, and I I, I never told you. He said, Oh, what did he tell you? He said, He said, Barry, can you get Dave Chappelle down here to my office? I said, I'm pretty sure I could make a call and get him down there. Oh, that's great, Barry. This is after the whole craziness with the show and walking away from all the money. And (laughs) he says, that's great because I got my feet on my desk and past my feet, Barry, is a paperweight. And on underneath that paperweight is a check for Pilot Boy Productions, which was Dave's production company because he did seven pilots with me. Wow. And uh, it's a check for $27 million. I said, oh, Doug, I'm sorry. I, I, I take that back. I can't get him there. I'm, I'm never going to get him there. And Doug got mad at me. I'm telling Dave he got mad. He's like, what the fuck you mean you can't? It's $27 million. You can't get him down here? I said, no, because if, you know, if I tell him that, he knows that if he cashes that check, you own him, and he's not going to cash it. But no amount of money. He's like, what the fuck are you talking about, Barry? It's a check for $27 million. And then Dave leans over. And you going to do it for 100000 <laughs> <laughs> And Dave leans over at this great moment. He looks me in the eyes. And he leans right up to me. He says, sounds a little light. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was supposed know. to be $50 million. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy, though. Sounds a little light, huh? <laughs> yeah, man. Crazy. I wonder dude. if he had to pay uh, child support payments from. Uh... Probably, man. <laughs> Yeah, man. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn. I love talk. I love being here, and I love talking to you. This is. I hope I'm not boring your audience. No, no, because no. you know it's like literally like fall. You gotta understand. I'm sitting here. It's like, it's like a comedian who isn't a comedian, like a guy who has no shot of doing as well as you. It's like going on after like Bill Burr. 
or going on, let's say you open a show with an hour and then you bring on like some guy who stands there in front of the mic. It's like, I, when I go on after you, I'm looking at you guys. I'm like, how the fuck am I going to follow these guys? They're amazing together. <laughs> I remember, um, I remember um, he talked to a comedian, bro. You know him? And, um, <laughs> and um, you actually, he, you actually saw him. Actually, he called you, right? He called him. You had a meeting with him. And um, what I, comedian was that? I want to say and then you could probably get embarrassed. Young comedian. I met with a young comedian. Yeah, and okay. um, and what did he tell you? What did he tell you? You asked him. Oh, this is this is what I told him. This is my advice for any stand-up comedian who's listening who doesn't want to tell us. shut down this podcast immediately. The ratings <laughs> once I once I get in, you know, the ratings were through the roof when I got on. Then when my voice hit, it's like shooting. You're losing audience left and right. They'll never come back. Anyway, no, this is a valuable input. So the, this is my advice for any comedian. Always is that this is what you have to do because every comedian will always say. Not just to me, but to probably you too. What do I got to do to make it? What do I got to do to get to your level? And this is what I say to them. You have to kill 10 times in a row in your home club, wherever that is in the world or the country. Don't give me spots. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's your, that's your first step. You got to get the spots. <laughs> I mean, that's what they're going to say. Don't give me spots, bro. <laughs> Then you create your own club with your own spots. There you go. Like Dublin's. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. Jay Davis did with Dublin's. If people don't put you on, find your own club where they'll put you on. As Dane, as Dane Cook would say, and I love this one thing that Dane Cook said that I'll never forget. Um, you know, when things weren't going as well for him as possible and we were talking about doing the whole social media thing. I said, what's the reason for making a website? Because he asked me to solicit a group to build his website, which was the first interactive website that any comedian or any artist had ever done. It cost $25,000. didn't even have the money. Damn. And he said, <clears throat> he said, you watch. He said, I'm going to create a noise in Hollywood where people will have to listen. And and it's the same in stand-up comedy. You have to create a noise. You have to create an accident. You know how when there's a car accident on the highway and everybody pulls over and they look at the accident? I know that's morbid, but in comedy, that's what you have to create when you're on stage. If you're not getting spots, guess what? You're not doing it. Any comedian listening to this podcast, is there anyone you know in comedy that gets a standing ovation that doesn't get spots. Can you name one fucking person? No. Can you name one person who does original, unique concepts and comedy that doesn't get spots? No. It doesn't exist. If you're not getting spots, you're not moving the needle and you're not doing the right stuff. So let me just tell you this philosophy. You kill ten times in your home club. What that means is this, okay? If I were to poll every audience member in the crowd, they would say you were the best. If I were to poll the barbacks and the bartenders and the waitresses, they would all say you're the best. If I would poll the comedians, even the ones that hate you, that are on the stage, and they would say you're the best, and that happens ten times in a row, it's over and people will be chasing you like your fucking ass is on fire to do anything. And once you do that, please call me and call anybody. But you won't have to call me because I'll be calling you. I'm right here, Doc. 
He'll be shaking your hand through Vine. <laughs> <laughs> His handshakes, he doesn't let go for until he's done talking to you. Huh? <laughs> yeah, Do you remember this, our first meeting? Yes. Um, no. Actually, no. You How know? did you guys meet? No, I don't remember. No, yeah. I had just auditioned for Last Comic Standing, um, season one. And um, I had just, and I did okay. I, I thought I did okay. And I was leaving, and then he came up and shook my hand. I shook his hand because I, I, I knew. I don't see it now, Felipe, but in 10 years, <laughs> I smell tortilla cooking. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you could tell there's something special. I mean, there's always something, you know, with original people, you can just tell that there's something special. You know, impressionists, you know, Rodrigo, are very, very tricky. It's a, I, just have a cli- I just had a client who booked a huge, huge job all he does is impressions he's the most unbelievable guy in uh, out there that's all he does well so what's the world like for somebody who has that kind of specialty only that specialty sketch shows well how many sketch shows are there that you can get on not that many so you can test over and over again but if you don't get them you don't get them and those sketch shows they don't just hire a lot of those specialists, they normally hire one, maybe two, who specialize in just the celebrity impressions. But nine years later, after I started working with him, just booked the biggest job of his life out of 600 people who auditioned. And, and so I love what you do, but it's also a killer because you got if you're an impressionist, normally I would say, figure out other things that you can do as well besides that or else he's you're going to <laughs> <laughs> It looks like he's wearing the shirt from the exterminator thing. Is that, is that, is that red thing? On, is that like some of the thing you exterminate? What's hey, that? No. <laughs> it's an eagle shirt from like five years ago. Fuck no, like 10. <laughs> That's the kind of shirt that you wear like five years ago. It's People are like, That's under that shirt. <laughs> Got the Jay Leno special. I'm dressed like Jay Leno today. That's right. Well, that first turquoise, bro. That's what he said. He didn't let the Native American yeah. I wanted my American Indian roots to come. No, that's the kind of shirt you wear like five years ago. People are like, that is cool. That is hip. Five years later, you're at a wedding. Get that fucking guy out of here. I've been kicked out of a wedding before. Hey, don't make fun of the orderly shirt. Come on, man. Wear the piss. He's from Boston, bro. He don't like the Yankees. You got pinstripe on. He's a Boston baked bean. The first time I saw him, and I knew he, who Barry Katz was because, you know, the name sounds famous, but Barry Katz. Oh, hell yeah. How many Katz do you know, though. bro? A lot. With a K. Dr. Katz, bro. That's it. Barry Manilow. <laughs> I saw him, bro, at the, what you call it, at Ralphie Mays Barbecue. I was there with my son and um, Larry Omaha and, and Fredo Smith. And I saw this dude with long ass red hair, fool. Long hair. And no weed. <laughs> <laughs> I never smoked weed. No weed, but hit this boy long hair. And they had a Manny Ramirez jersey, original, an authentic one, too. The Boston one? The Boston one. Yeah. And I said, yeah, it's very cats. <laughs> and the whole world at that barbecue, man, was that's where Last Coming Standing started in that barbecue. It was a crazy time. There was Jay Moore, him. Ralphie May, that individual's kids running around. Yeah, I mean, there's. it's interesting when I think about comedians and what 
Look, you know, Ralphie May, again, I, I have a rule that I never will say anything that I wouldn't say if they were here. So I think to myself, before I say it, like, can we I We all say know it? he's big. <laughs> it's all good, so big you, got, you got Ralphie, big, who's probably like, you know, if I'm 220 pounds, then probably Ralphie has to be at least 400 pounds, you would say. Right. Right? And so when you're four or 500 pounds or whatever you are, and you're a comedian, and you want to act and you want to do other things. I mean, there's very few roles for you, for you to do. And you got to figure out, can you make it? And can you do, look, look at Louis Anderson. Okay. And again, I implore your audience to, uh, to watch baskets. You, it may not be your cup of tea cause it's so dark and so unbelievably real and horribly, horribly dark, but funny. Like the manager, right? He plays. He plays Zach's mom. That's now, right. I saw that. Now you yeah, think to yourself, freaky. like how, Louis Anderson. Have you seen him act in any television and film since uh, coming to America or anything like that? Probably not. If you know Louis Anderson as a comedian, you know one of the most wonderful, sweet, kind. Never would do anything to hurt anybody. But people, as you know, throughout the years, not kind when they talk about Louis. You know, even though he's one of the greatest stand-up comedians that we've ever seen. The cartoon the, was bombed. Louis, Louis. The oh, cartoon yeah. won three uh, won three Humanitas Awards, Life with Louis, which has never been done before. But Louis, you know, you take a lot of heat because he's, you know, he's a, a big guy. He's kind of effeminate and, you know, doesn't get a lot of acting jobs. So it's easy to take shots at somebody. This guy's going to be nominated for an Emmy Award. I, you mark my words. And when you see that, you realize, yeah, it's really hard to find roles that are right for you. But if you can find somebody who believes in you, then you're going to be in great shape. If Like for Felipe, he's not going to be going out for every role. He's elected to look a certain way. He's made a choice to have a beard, long, straggly hair. He's made a choice to be more rotund and... Uh, <laughs> than a guy who's got a, a washboard stomach. He's not Brian Kalen, okay? He's not Joe Rogan. He's made this choice. So how many roles do you think there are in film and television for a guy of that type? Me and Jack Black. Not a lot. And Jack Black even changed his look, and now Jack Black lost like over 120 pounds, and, you know, he's not even the same guy. Cut John Goodman lost weight. Yeah, dude. So the point is, is that, you know, there's not a lot of things. So if there's not a lot of roles for you, you have to be extraordinary at what you do to get the gigs. Brad Williams, we were talking about, the guy's, you know, four foot four. How many roles are there for Brad Williams? Bad Santa four. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you right now, uh, you know, representing Brad, I know that Brad Williams is going to be a huge star. I know that he's going to take this this whole thing by storm. He works incredibly hard. He gives great performances on stage. He's he creates. He has a podcast. He creates Pop his own thing. He has a great podcast where he just interviewed the Goo Goo Dolls and uh, and Susan Sarandon. And, and but he's also an amazingly wonderful, nice guy like you. Yeah, man, lovable, lovable and huggable. Win the race every time. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. You can be Dennis Leary and still win the race, but. Your best shot is lovable and huggable. And approachable. 
and approachable. Larry Moss told us amazing stories, the greatest acting coach of my generation on my podcast. Um, and uh, by the way, thank you for having me on. This is incredible. And, and to know that you're, thanks for being on. Hell yeah. Thank you. To know that your audience might tune into my uh, thing and that it might help them would be a dream. So, so Larry Moss is, who's, uh, tells me the story about how now a lot of times we talked about how different types are more difficult to get jobs. So a lot of times agencies and managers will try to create an unfair advantage if there is a role that is out there that finally comes along that's great for that type of person. So Michael Clark Duncan's representatives, and he was a guy who was like probably six foot six, maybe 350 pound black guy. And the Green Mile came along. So and there was the most by boss. <laughs> <laughs> and there was that amazing role of JC, which is yes. meta- metaphorically Jesus Christ. And um, so I believe his agent and his manager pitched in to get Larry Moss to give him an acting private coaching session at his house. He goes to his house or apartment, I'm sorry. And Michael Clark Duncan says, Mr. Moss, I'm, I'm pleased, you know, you should go. I don't want these guys to spend money on me. I, I'm, I'm not right. I'm never going to get this. I never you look at me. I mean, I'm. I never, I, there's no roles for me. I'm not this, I'm not going to get this. He said 30 minutes later, he's holding, this is Larry Moss is an older, thin white guy, Michael Clark Duncan, huge black guy. They're holding hands and they're crying on the couch. That's what Larry does. He gets in your psyche and he, because a lot of times what happens as a comedian, you use your pain and you use it as like this incredible like Popeye spinach to be the funniest person you can be. In acting, it's the reverse muscle. You can't use the pain. You have to get rid of the fucking pain to clear out your whole system so you can be focused to give everything you have to the words that you're being asked to act. And so he convinces him to do the audition. He does the audition. He gets the gig. And at the Academy Awards where he was nominated, he finds Larry Moss and he goes up to him and he shakes his hand. He said, Larry, can I tell you something? And he said, Mr. Moss, can I tell you something? I always said, Mr. Moss. And what is it? The, he said, Mr. Moss, before I met you, when I walked in an elevator and people came in, they would take a step back until their backs hit the wall. Now when I walk in an elevator, people take steps towards me and want to hug me. And that's the whole key to it. It's just, again, creating the holy shit moment, preparing, working as hard as you can and letting it all go. And then once you get that shot on screen, every take that you have in front of the camera, because you never know what they're going to take. You have to be great every take. And then you create the great work and people will love you. Damn. You go to theaters, bro. <laughs> in a nutshell. How did, how did, um, how did, um, how did you guys get, that show Whitney on the air. Uh, you say that in a very weird tone. What do you mean? How? Did, you mean, you <laughs> no, mean how the, the process? Because oh, okay, I the process. One, one time we were talking, and you told me that um, you know she was not, you know, she's not a known writer. She's not a showrunner. That's right. So then the, you told me that um, no one in Hollywood, and these are your words, takes on an unknown. That's has right. never been proven. That's they right. Always gotta t- they'll always team you up with somebody like Bill Rosenthal and Ray Romano. That's right. I'll tell you how. And I, because I, people I, think Barry that they're just gonna have a show in the air and you know all the lights are gonna open. We're yeah. gonna sell out theaters left and right. 
we're gonna get a forty. We're gonna rent a theater for forty five thousand dollars. You know. Well, first of all, I just want to say that, uh, you know, if I did say no one, then that's that's wrong. I don't think I would say that. What I say, what I normally say, is like the odds of that happening are slim and none, and slim left town. <laughs> <laughs> But the fact is, is left us a long but time the ago. fact is, you know, I'd love to talk a little bit about Whitney because, um, you know, there, if you could find a harder working human being, uh, there is, I don't know. I used to think that my, she was kidding every night too, by the way, I used to think, uh, to myself, um, uh, you know, she must be like texting me in the bathtub with a phone with a Ziploc bag around it. Like she, she must take the phone in the shower with a Ziploc because she never stopped. She was a driven person, and again, but it doesn't matter how driven you are. When I met Whitney, uh, I I credit working with Whitney to, believe it or not, Jay Moore. He never really recommend. Most artists don't really recommend anybody to you because they, I don't think, in psychologically, in the back of their mind, they don't want anybody to take the attention away from. Take them. my thunder. <laughs> um, I, I would think I don't. I don't really know. Barry but, never focuses on me anymore. <laughs> But I, I think that I'm the, slim. <laughs> uh, I, I was up at Sundance with Jay, the Sundance Film Festival, and Whitney was a correspondent. And again, it was that one of those moments where I shook her hand and I said to her, listen, you know, there's something about you. I, I feel like you could be an actress, a writer, an executive producer and a stand up comedian. And she said, I've, I've never done any of those things. I said, I think you will. And I think I can help you. And we started working together and. That's one of the greatest moments of my life that year where, I mean, she had three shows on the air that she, she had Whitney, she had Love You Mean It, and she had two broke girls that she created with Michael uh, Patrick King who did Sex in the City. And so how the process of how it happens, um, this is how it got started again, holy shit moments. But you need the opportunities like that comic you said, well, they don't put me on, they don't give me spots. Well, Whitney, Whitney had a very hard time getting any respect because she would go to the comedy store. Again, I'm saying things that I could say if she were sitting here. She wasn't doing well uh, at the comedy store. She wasn't killing. But when you're a beautiful girl and you are accessible, <laughs> when you're a beautiful girl and you know how to navigate with guys, and, and, I, and this is a very interesting thing, and you guys will probably end up joking about this, but it's actually pretty serious and it's interesting. In any profession, if you're a woman, you have to figure out how to make the guys want to fuck you, but don't fuck them. They want you around. They think you're funny. They're sexy. They think they have a chance to fuck you, but they don't. Friend and, zone. <laughs> but they don't even understand they're in that zone. And you, if you know how to navigate like that and be driven and have talent... You'll get the spots as a woman or anything. If you're in the law firm, if you're in the, you know, the internship, whatever, you're at 7-Eleven. You're going to move up if you can figure out how to navigate with your mind, your sexuality, and your talent and your drive. So she was able to do that. She always dressed down, jeans, a hoodie, always dressed down. And, you know, comedians also had take, take pot shots at her. They did it all the time and hurt her feelings a lot of times. But she never let it bother her. She kept 
driving forward, but she said, Barry, I need something. I need something. And everybody keep passing. Comedy Central, three years in a row, passed on her for premium blend. Now, that's 195 comedians that they booked before they booked Whitney Cummings. So I thought, how is it can we get her? So she was writing great stuff. She wrote some stuff for a roast that I submitted to Joel Gallon, who produces the roast and Comedy Central, and they hired her as a female writer. And if you remember the uh, roast where Snoop Dogg did the funny rap, she wrote that for him. Okay. And so now I thought, okay, if we could just submit her to perform on the roast. But I needed, you know, you can't just film somebody doing a roast. Well, how many roasts do you know where they, they, you can you – can, have you ever gone to see a roast at a comedy club? It's very rare. Right. You know, Jeff Ross does the roast battles at the thing now at the comedy store, but back then they didn't. So I knew Tom Arnold pretty well. I'd done his hour special uh, before Felipe's, and um, he was doing a benefit roast for some charity with uh, Peter Berg, uh, who's a director of Battleship and a, a bunch of other things. And I asked Tom, I said, listen, will you do me a favor? Will you, I have a young actress who I'd like to bring on as a roaster. And I told him about her. She said, I don't know her. I've never heard of her. I said, just trust me. Just do me a favor. I know you're filming from an archival camera at the hotel. I need this tape. And he did me that favor. I owe a lot to Tom Arnold. She went on. She fucking destroyed the place. Said the, like the best set of the night in this benefit, which was, you know, and I got the tape. And what I did, I converted to a link and I sent it to the president of Comedy Central. And I said, listen, I just want to show you this before I show anybody on your team, which was dangerous because it can alienate other people on at the network who passed on her over and over again. But I thought, you know, when you're a manager, you have to fight and spit blood for your artist and worry about yourself later and hope that talent will rule and they'll talk to you again when you have another great talent. I never worried about being around or finding great talent. And so I did it. And one of the assistants at Comedy Central had told me that he emailed it to the whole team and said, how come we don't have funny people like this on our roast and our network? And then I got the offer for her to do the Comedy Central roast with Larry the Cable Guy. Now, talk about how Hollywood works. She's so excited. We're ready. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a comic and you get a great opportunity. It doesn't matter at all because it's the same philosophy that I talked about at the comedy club. If you're not the fucking best that night, you're not getting anything from it. There's been a 100-hour specials, Felipe, maybe 200 of them. Not everybody does an hour special does well. Hell yeah. The Tonight Show, when people did The Tonight Show, Long Go With Johnny, not everybody became famous. Roseanne and Louie Anderson did, but a lot of people didn't. So Whitney practiced and studied for this roast, and then a month before I get the call, Barry, um, uh, we're not going to be able to have Whitney do the Larry the Cable Guy roast. We're sorry. Sorry, we're with Natasha Leggero. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, you can't do that. And I had a huge argument with them. And they said, look, you know, Larry wants his own people and he doesn't know her and it's not going to happen. Weak. Damn. And so. Uh, get her dug. Get her out. And so um, 
I struck a deal where they gave her the next one and they put it all in writing that it would never. And that was the best thing that ever happened. Again, uh, another thing in our business and life and whatever profession you guys are in, what you'll find is tragedy spurs success. It always does. Or a negative thing always turns around to something positive. And so Whitney lost that. It was devastating. But then she got the chance to roast Joan Rivers, which was a much bigger. Hell yeah, that was a good one. Which was a much bigger one, a different group of people where she could shine. And her first line out of the gate, Joan, I loved you in The Wrestler. And from that point on, <laughs> she crushed. And after that roast, you know, when Jeff Ross is walking up to you and saying, Barry, she really killed it. That that means something because he's a guy who's done every single one of them, which is another story that I could tell about the roast. But the point being is, so that launched her being the best person. At, you poll everybody at that event and they would say she had the best roasting set. And so then what happens is you make the call and now you have an overall deal that you can make a Comedy Central. I negotiated for her own hour special. She'd never even done five minutes at the network. But I got her an hour special when the people had passed. 195 comedians did a five-minute set before her. And now she was leapfrogging to an hour because she created the holy shit moment. She was huggable and lovable, but still dark and edgy. And she had the best set of anybody that night, and everybody will tell you that. And so that fueled everything. So she got her own deal at Comedy Central. We got a script deal too, but they passed on it. And then we went to NBC and um, in a different hybrid kind of show. And um, we did really well. And the story that I find funny, and again, Whitney, I don't think she would mind if I told it, which is great. This caller. You, <laughs> you have to take risks. You have to take risks in any profession. You got it, bro. And so you ask yourself when you're sitting in a meeting getting ready to go to NBC, what kind of risk do you take? You go with your gut and the instinct of the risk you take with your talent. This is the risk Whitney took, and it was amazing. The guy, Jeff Engle, who produces Rush Hour now but on CBS, but he was the head of NBC, scripted, and he was the guy who made the decisions. We're sitting there in the lobby, Whitney and her agent and myself, getting ready to pitch and he walks by and says sorry I'm late uh, just give me a few minutes and I'll bring you in he was a tall good looking blonde guy and instead of saying okay she stands up and walks straight up to him and shakes his hand and you know how people in Canada talk to you like when they're really close yeah. to your face she got right in his face and she looked beautiful and she was sexy and she was just had this edge to her and this is the first thing she says to the guy who's the decision maker of whether the show goes or not. She said, my God, look at you. You're like a member of Hitler's master race. <laughs> and he looked at her and he had that serious look on his face and then he broke and he laughed. And I knew right then and there he was going to make the commitment for her show. Because what truly does it take for a guy who has a multi-million dollar budget to give a young comic the opportunity? 
what it takes is what writing a check for $75,000 here. I'll give you this money, write a script. You know, it's nothing. It's like cab fare. So he, she engaged him. She took the risk. He knew nobody ever had the balls to do that to him because everybody walked on eggshells. She pitched the show. The pitch that she did, I'm sure she would say, wasn't the greatest pitch in the world. She had the paper in her hand, which I don't really agree with all the time to have the paper and refer to. I like it when people are off book, but a lot of people do it and sell shows that way. And she sold it and he bought the script. But what he didn't know, she already had the script. So when she turned it in two weeks early, he was like, my God, this girl is quick. And when he gave her notes, she already anticipated the notes he was going to give and she gave that quicker. And as Magic Johnson would say so eloquently, when you ask him what it takes to get to the highest level, he'd say two words, over-deliver. And that's what she did, and that's how she got on the air, and that's how she stayed on the air for two years, even though you know, um, people would say, well, it only went two years, it got canceled. That's, you know, if you can be a comedian and get on the air that long, that's, that's a huge accomplishment, and she's... Uh, She's an amazing artist. Yeah, man. Also, man, one thing I learned about you, the Barry Katz, he goes, Felipe, there's a power in no. The power of no. Because also, um, also um, I remember in our talks that um, after the, um, when Whitney was trying to get more opportunities, she had, a, she had a, an opportunity to be a, a host of Last Comic Standing. To be, or, a ju- to be a judge. To be a judge, my bad. Or okay. to be on a Tonight Show. Oh, damn. And then you asked, do you want to be remembered as the woman, the first woman to host, to judge Last Comic Standing or uh, uh, the person who killed it on a Tonight Show? It's true. You know, the thing is, and, and again. That was a smart move, though. And this She is, didn't go for the money. She just went for the and it was prestige. Good, and it was good money. And I want to share this with your audience because I think this is important. My mother always used to tell me, uh, Mrs. Katz, Mrs. Katz, <laughs> whatever decision you make, make it the right one. So what's fascinating is what, what decision is right for one person. It's not right for the next person. It's not person. right for the next person. It could be a better decision for the next person. Now, when we passed on being a judge on last comic standing and that, you know, I was an executive producer that doesn't look good when they go to you, get your client to do this judging. And you say, I'm not going to have her do the judging. Not, not, not good. Not good for the, <laughs> not good for the relationship there at this show for me. But the thing is, you always have to look out for the artist first. However, when she passed the next person on the list, it was a good move for and that was Natasha Legero. It was a good move for her because she had already proven herself as an actor. She had done a, a Reno 911. She had done some things, but she was sort of out of the eye for a while. As a stand-up, she wasn't really getting things the way she wanted to. And she hadn't really done anything that really stood out in a, I'm not saying a long while, but in a little while. So to have the opportunity for her to judge at that stage of her career was a really good thing. And she could shine and she could come across with humility. Whitney's the kind of person that she can't help being more snarky and she has that thing. So I was worried that if she was on camera and, you know, it would be easy to shit on comedians or whatever. And it doesn't look good when a comedian shits on another comedian. It especially bad when, for her. Yeah. But Natasha had a different kind of way about yeah. her. 
So it was a good move for Natasha. And I would have recommended Natasha do it, but not Whitney at the time. And it worked well for Natasha, and Natasha's doing great as well, and a really, really wonderful artist as well. Yeah, man, you see that, fool? Hell yeah, dude. Um, so uh, what, what the, you tell people where can they listen to your podcast and what episode I'm on so they could go listen to it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately turn this off and then go listen to me on Barry Katz podcast. <laughs> And then uh, you, the you just go on iTunes and search industry standard uh, with Barry Katz, and then you just uh, press that little subscribe thing. It's free. It costs nothing. And uh, and then uh, Felipe is the literally uh, you're you're the episode. I don't know when this airs, but you were my last episode. And, yes, I was. But I'm you know, and there's some really just so you know, just to give you some backstory on the show because I don't I don't know if it's even would interest your audience or not, but. It's all about the journey. So I, the, the whole impetus be, behind it was, as a manager, when I, when I was working with Felipe, and I hope he doesn't take offense to this. I'm here. You know, <laughs> when, when we did the hour special together, um, or all those talks we had during Last Comic Standing, which I thought were really wonderful, inspirational Pep talks. talks. Um, I had never had any doubt that he w- wasn't going to win that show, um, and I I, I wasn't. Uh, I was shy. nervous, bro. He'll give me he'll give me by the shoulders. But you gotta be, you gotta have a holy shit moment tonight. You gotta be <laughs> undeniable. So that was always on my head, you know, because you're. But basically, I was like, yeah, man. So I gotta kill it. And did it help you though with Hell your nervousness yeah. and everything? Hell yeah, yeah dude. That's what's up, dude. Yeah, and, and so, but again, that might not be right for another artist. But the but the point, get off me. <laughs> <laughs> Give me some space. But the point is, you know, you have to, as a manager, you have to be a chameleon and you have to know how to handle different. Chameleon. <laughs> we had a friend, he's um, who started off with us, Barry. This guy used to work with a Dodger Stadium, pushing chicken, selling hot dogs, cooking hot dogs, serving sodas. He never became a comedian, but he hung out with us every single open mic, went to our shows. Gabriel took him on the road. He's Gabriel's assistant now. Gabriel Iglesias. So he he, he does he does well, right? Yeah, he's, he's doing an all assistant. Right. As a career. So that guy shit. said they asked him, Are you a comedian? No, I'm a chameleon. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say chameleon, he's gonna be happy. Man. <laughs> I yeah. told you guys you gotta be a chameleon. <laughs> yeah, and so what I found was like when you won or when we got the hour special and it aired. Obviously I went home that night and and, and I sat down and I was just it's it was so it's just like a dream. It's wonderful, but the negative about it is, I realize I was only helping one person. I only helped one person, and 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 I thought that so that matters, man. And and for the artists, when you're managing them, that's all they care about. Just help me, motherfucker. Don't help anybody else. <laughs> but for for me. If I could do something in my spare time, like here we're at lunchtime here, you know, where I don't have to take away from my work. And with the podcast, I do it in all these times when I don't take away from my work. I edit on Sunday. I'm taking an acting class after this. <laughs> Hell yeah. And Another I th- one. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, I want to do that. Moss. And <laughs> Larry Moss. And when I, you know, like if I met, if I had a meeting with a president of a network and I got out of the meeting, I went in my car and be like, I can't believe I was the only one who got to hear that. And so the impetus behind it was to find these network executives, presidents of networks, presidents of production companies, producers, directors, and sometimes comedians who also had executive produced behind the scenes. 
and talk about the journey from their humble beginnings to how they went through the ups and downs to get where they were. And I just, you know, one of the things that happened that was also kind of funny and, and it was, uh, is that Jay Moore was a very big impetus in me doing this because he asked me to do his first podcast and I told him I didn't want to do it. I wasn't the kind of person for his thing. I'd never done it before. And he said, Barry, you're doing it. I said, get a celebrity to do it. I'm Barry. Be there. I said, I don't want it. Barry. I'm not saying it again. Be in my garage and do it. So I did his first podcast and this podcast went to number one the first week. And I was a recipient of 450,000 people, you know, riding on his coattails. And I'm like, wow, this, and, <laughs> and I'm, and I'm, get, and I'm getting all these people calling and emailing me. It's like, That's it's, true. it's insanity. It's like, it was just insanity. And, uh, but I didn't say anything cause I didn't want to say anything to Jay. Cause it's like, I'm not, I don't want to, you know, and he calls me. Uh, about a week later and says, I need you to do the third show, my third show. I said, Jay, I'm not doing your third show. I just did your first show. You need guests. No, you're coming back. My producer says it's insanity. It's like people are calling. They want you back. And so I did, literally, I did the third show, the first show, the third show, the 10th show, the 20th show. And I did like 13 of these shows and I over like 4 million people just on his podcast alone had listened to my stuff. And and we talked about that I should probably do it. And when he says, when Jay, who I've worked with for over 25 years, says, Barry, you should probably do your own podcast, it's a nice thing. And so I do it. My first one I call Doug Herzog, who's the president of Viacom Entertainment, who oversees wow. Comedy Central, Spike, uh, TV Land, just a bunch of everything. And he says yes immediately, which is a great feeling knowing that, you know, you you can have that. And he did the show, and it launches on a Monday, and I get a call from Jay. Jay, uh, Jay says, Barry, I want you to come down to the radio station because he's, uh, you know, the host that radio show in 150 markets, um, uh, Jay Moore Sports. And I said, I can't come, Jay. I can't come. He said, Barry, come down here. I said, Jay, I'd have to move, move it around, come down here. I come down to his radio station, and he waves me in. And he's got a computer, a laptop open. And he says, I want you to look at this. And you know how on iTunes they have the, the you know, you, the top 200 and then yes. on the side is the top 10. Right. He said, look at this Barry. And it was number three on that side thing. And I'm like, how is that possible? I Nobody even knows who I am. Nobody knows who Doug Herzog is. He said, I don't know how it's possible, but this is what it is. They and this know is now. Where it is. And I said, wow, that's amazing. And I was all excited about it. And he said, don't get too excited. You're going to drop like a stone. It just, it just, it just, oh, <laughs> dropping at the Mexican it, peso. It, it, just, it, it just opens like that. And I'm like, well, thank you for bringing me over here. And he walks out. Number 450. And then he comes, <laughs> and then he comes back in and he did this wonderful thing that I thought was so funny, but sort of like, you know, Al Pacino kissing Fredo. Yeah. It's like he takes his hands on my shoulders. You know, if somebody is face to face with you and they put a hand on both sides of your shoulders and they're looking in the eyes like that. And he says, cats. I said, yeah, Jay. He said, listen, man. You're not supposed to do better than your fucking clients. 
and he hugged and he hugged me and he kissed me on the cheek and walked off in the distance. And uh, I said, "Okay, that's a, that's because everybody told me not to do it because of they said you you know you, you clients are going to be upset. I said, they're going to be upset. I'm sitting down with Steve Levitan and Chris Albrecht and Doug Herzog, all these presidents and things. Well, it might take away. I said, I'm going to do in my spare time. Well. You know, what happens if you do better than they do on the podcast? I said, well, that it's, I can't help that. I just want, they said, the don't, they said, then don't do it. You know, like when I looked at the podcast this week, I was so happy I did the uh, uh, Felipe show. And I oftentimes look at the top 200 and I'm looking at it and Felipe and I are right next to each other. <laughs> Hell yeah, bro. Yeah, neck and neck. Uh, on the oh, thing. Yeah, and I was like, I like, and I, I was like, how is this possible? You know, how is it, you know, but the fact is, is that, it makes me happy that people find something in it that really inspires them. And the podcast I did with Felipe, you know, if ever you're, if you haven't listened to it, ever you're anybody who thinks, you know, oh, they're going through struggles or they're doing this and that, what this guy who hosts this show went through to get where he is now is just like, it's, you talk about the American dream or the Mexican dream or whatever the hell it is. It's just incredible. It's emotional and it's powerful, and um, and that's all I wanted to do was show people how they could get to the next level, the things that they were going to go through, the obstacles, how to overcome the obstacles, and uh, it's been really it's created kind of a niche. Now, granted, you know sometimes you know the the artist in me. Like when I look on the thing, like this week is funny. Like I look on and it's whatever you said, 70 and 73 out of 200. And I'm thinking, you know, there's 375,000 podcasts. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, it, so dude. It's wow. Like, I told you, fool, there's a lot of, of them. them so, dog. It, so it's My like. My grandma has one. <laughs> every, time a steel <laughs> mill clo- every time a steel mill closes, there's 5,000 new podcasters. But, um, <laughs> but, but the point is you look on it and you're like, you're like, wow, oh, this is. This is, I guess this is okay. And then like three days later, I look at it. It's like, I'm like, like number 143. I'm like, fuck man, I'm going down. <laughs> it's over. And that's the artist in me that, but then it doesn't matter if like I was number like a thousand or, or, or 5,000. Uh, as, as long as we're beating Bob and Tom. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is that you're, if you can make an impact, and I'm just so grateful that so many people have uh, felt that it's helped them. And, and I can guarantee you, uh, all your audience listening, if you can get past the sound of my own voice and my stories <laughs> and listen to this podcast, I can guarantee you it will change your life forever. And I'm not, I, I know that's Start a cocky. In 45 minutes. <laughs> I know that's a cocky. Uh, I interviewed the, 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 one of the executive producers of uh, Sex in the City, Sydney Shupak. She says, This fool wrote a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> He's pitching in that podcast. She said this thing that was so funny. She said, well, I have to confess something. I said, what is it? NPR. She said, she said on my iPad, I listen to you at one and a half speed. <laughs> <laughs> I slow it down. I want to hear everything. What's up, fool? The legendary Barry Katz in the house. Hell yeah. Thank you so much. What an honor this has been. And um, you have anything you. coming up you want to tell the people? They can find you. I just uh, the back I, of the club somewhere. I don't the back of the club every morning is where you fire me. <laughs> I don't care about anything they were to come see me or do as long as they just listen to this and 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 help them. If it helps them, I'm really happy. It's it's the this to me. It's one of the greatest things to be able to to help people and and to do something that uh, will inspire them. So that's all I care about. 
Rodrigo. Hell yeah. No, nah, man, thank you very much for all your insight. And uh, who would know, I mean, as far as modern comedy goes, who would know where it would be at if it wasn't for you? Because you, you, you know, very, uh, I mean, just some of the comedians that you, uh, you know, that you guided through and managed. I mean, if you weren't in the mix, who knows what would it be? Who, who would we be looking at comedy stars these yeah. days? Thanks, Seriously, man. man it's that fucking. Means, that means a lot. Very fucking, um, dude, great shit, dude. Keep yeah, shining, man. dog. Yeah, fucking awesome. This weekend, I'll be at May 12th. Through the 14th, I'm doing Fresno, Merced, and Visalia, California with Larry Bubbles Brown. Mer. Dallas, Texas, I'm at Arlington Improv, May 19th through the 22nd. Chattanooga, Tennessee, May 27th through the 29th at Comedy Catch with Marcella Aguayo and Rodrigo Torres. Yeah, man. I'm going to um, Hoover, Alabama. I don't even know where that shit is. June 3rd through the 5th at Comedy Club Stardom. Hit up fans at FelipeWorld.com. For a couple of free tickets to the show in Alabama, most likely it'll be me and Rodrigo and Keith Manning or get off the field. We don't know them. <laughs> Orlando, Florida, June 9th through the 12th at Orlando Improv. All right, I'll be there in Orlando. June 11th is my birthday. Anybody want to surprise me? Show up. <laughs> Check out all the dates at the rest of the year at FelipeWorld.com. Also, don't forget if you're gonna buy something on Amazon. Go to, make sure you get it through the Amazon search window on FelipeIsWorld.com because every time you buy something on Amazon.com, Felipe gets free shipping and not you guys. Now, we get a little <laughs> cut. Also, man, when you go to listen to Barry Katz podcast, he also has an Amazon window. <laughs> and on his Amazon window, go through his Amazon window and buy my album. It's for the Jewish boy college fund. Hell yeah, man. He has two two lovely kids who look like professional surfers. <laughs> and uh, I'll be at the Long Beach Laugh Factory this Sunday. Um, Orale. Yeah, for Latino Night. So. Nonstop. Yeah, man. Who's hosting? Benny Mena. Benny Mena. The one and only. Right you got to go hit, the, hit up that show, bro. Yeah, fool. Tell people what's up. That's what's up, fool. Go listen to my jokes. <laughs> nah, they're all good. Benny Mena. Benny Mena. Check out Benny Mena, people, this Sunday with Rodrigo Torres at the Laugh Factory. In Long Beach, there's tickets available if you hit up Benny Mena on his, on his Facebook or Rodrigo. There's plenty of tickets for that show. $5 hit him up. That fool used to book me at um that, that show, man. Uh, Mari, Mar- Mariposa. Mariposa. A bro. bunch of little gigs, dude. Come, come do my show, dog. Come on, big dog. Yeah, you're the baby now. <laughs> What's up, fool? We got Barry Cash right here, Hell man. Yeah. Also, man, I'm putting, he, he's, he's selling that Manny Ramirez jersey on eBay. <laughs> he <wanna> buy it. <laughs> he's moved on. He's a Dodger fan now. Hell yeah, man. What's up, fool? Barry Cash, thank you, man. Thank no you. No matter you every know. time I talk to you, man, I always learn something and, I'm going to go back to taking my acting classes. Next time you see me, man, I'm going to be 30 pounds lighter. I'm going to shave my beard. I'm going to do Jim Jeffries jokes in Mexi- in Spanish. <laughs> What's up, fool? Hell yeah. <laughs> Fucking awesome. Dude. Skip skipping the beach and not close enough so that space between you and me let's lose it the way you're dancing swaying to the music girl that body and how you move it every time you cross my mind girl i lose it alexa play the country heat playlist okay with amazon music a voice is all you need get tens of millions of songs download the amazon music app today